Hello everyone and welcome to another edition uh, of our Mindplex podcast. Today's conversation is going to be very, very, very hot, hot topic around uh, a new book uh, of Dr. Jeff Funk, which is uh, about to be released and it uh, revolves uh, on the topic of competing in the age of bubbles. And of course, we're going to tackle, guess what? The hottest bubble in town, which is the AI bubble. We're going to talk about other things as well, but uh, I'm quite excited about this conversation and uh, welcome to the podcast, uh, Jeff. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, I will, you know, it's very hard to put you in a box. So I, I will try to, to introduce you to our um, listeners as I see you. And uh, please, uh, I will give you the opportunity to add uh, to, to my introduction uh, along the conversation. So uh, you are an innovator and a thought leader who does not shy away to shed light on the most painful, inconvenient truths. And actually, that's how we met. We met when you drew my attention with a very insightful comment to one of my posts on, I think it was on LinkedIn. And then I thought, well, this guy has an uncanny ability to see through the smoke and mirrors and dispel myth and shed light on the truth. So I really became one of your avid readers and, and fans and followers. And, um, okay, so uh, I found out that you got a PhD at uh, Carnegie Mellon, you are highly educated and you uh, followed with an academic career. During your PhD, so you did actually a PhD while working in a semiconductor's uh, factory, and then uh, went on to pursue this academic career, which took you to Asia in the end, to Japan, and then to the National University of Singapore, where eventually you settled. So, and along with teaching, you wrote numerous academic articles as one of the first to recognize that new technologies, rather than being uh, like quickly spreading in the world, were in fact vastly overhyped. And you detail various facets of this in five, five books, including the Stanford University Press published Technology Change and the rise of new industries uh, in 2013. And again, you were one of the first to recognize the potential for smartphones during the late 90s and early 2000s in Japan. And you worked with several companies uh, in the telecom industry, among which Nokia, and you got also the NTT Docomo Mobile Science Award in 2004. I do not know exactly if your book Mobile Destruction was published around that time as well. Yes. And uh, okay, that's so I assume that's what also uh, contributed to your award. And more recently, I had the immense joy and honor to meet you in person this spring in Seattle at the, the George Gilders COSP conference, where you, along with Eric Schmidt, Peter Thiel, were a keynote speaker and impressed me along with the audience. I'm sure you got many more fans there by displaying again your incorrigible pessimism at how the world malfunctions through big promises, small results. And through your talk, you took us on a ride prov uh, proving with clear evidence and data, which was very sad to see, how hype and misleading narratives are hiding startup losses, declining tech and falling science and failing science as well. So 
Were you always a pessimist, Jeff? No, I wasn't. Uh, <laughs> when I was 13, we went to the moon. I, that so excited me. And that's a big reason why I, uh, I majored in <laughs> physics and uh, along with uh, the success of Star Trek back then. Um, and so after I got my physics, I worked in semiconductor factory. So I was very opti optimistic. And then I went to get my PhD at Carnegie Mellon and did look at the economics of robots. And so an element of pessimism kind of got in there. I realized that people had overhyped the, the robots. They never really did diffuse as fast as uh, people thought, including myself. Um, and then, as you mentioned, I was involved with the mobile Internet in Japan. And I was a big optimist there. And uh, my optimist proved right. I mean, uh, people were telling me, no, no, no. What's going on in Japan doesn't matter. It, it, the rest of the world is different. Uh, the mobile Internet won't take off. And, of course, it did eventually uh, uh, through, through Apple. But it was the same kind of applications. It was the same kind of story. And uh, my book, 2004 Mobile Disruption, talked about a lot of these applications that ended up succeeding. So I was this pessimist. I was this optimist. And, uh, you know, I knew it wasn't all fields. Um, but then I went to Singapore in 2007. I started teaching this course in economics and new technologies. And that's when my pessimism started because I was, I was, I spent 13 weeks talking about the economics of all these technologies. So I covered all kinds of things from all this IT related stuff, which was still doing well because of uh, smartphone and, and PDA and not PDAs, uh, the tablet computer, these types of things. But then uh, I was also looking at nanotechnology and superconductivity and, and bioelectronics, electronics, kind of all these things. And I realized each year that when I updated the slides that, a lot of things weren't getting better. And then I looked at, uh, I analyzed some MIT technology reviews predictions. They did some, they've been doing predictions since 2000, almost every year. And I analyzed a bunch of them in about 2015. I realized that very few of them, three out of 40 of the first 40 had come true. So I began to realize that, well, there was a lot of hype. And then I began to notice all the losses, all the startup losses. And, and so I began to become a, a pessimist, and I particularly became very pessimistic about people who would say, you know, there was some latest uh, article and they would get all excited about it. I'd say, people have been talking about this for 20 years. It, it, there's nothing new here. There's nothing. If you look at the trajectory, the improvement trajectory, there is none. So I began to become this pessimist, and I began to say, no, it's not as simple as that. Uh, and and I've continued that uh, over the last five to 10 years. Yes, and, and indeed, I mean, there's so much ignorance in the world. And now in this uh, mirage world of a bubble, not of bubbles necessarily, but of buzzwords and marketing and all this stuff and inflating everything. We do not know. We cannot. It's hard to distinguish truth from from false and what is real, what is not. And therefore, you know, it's very important to have this kind of scrutiny and more realistic approach. And therefore, I definitely salute and not only me, but also your many fans and followers are saluting your work and, and your approach. Uh, and so um, now I understand because, you know, actually, when I met you in person, you are a very nice guy. I mean, you're not this grouchy pessimist, which, uh, you know, transpires in your writings. But <laughs> of course, it's impossible uh, not to be a pessimist in this world uh, of lies where 
as we were talking before at some point, uh, is the lie that rules. So, and I think bubbles and, and uh, the lie have, uh, and the mirage and this inflated expectations uh, have a lot to do with bubbles. So tell us what are bubbles? Tell us a bit them, how they work, their dynamics. Uh, you are the expert. Well, there's a lot of different definitions, but uh, I think the best description of financial bubbles uh, comes from uh, Robert Schiller, who won a Nobel Prize many years ago. Uh, he wrote his book, Irrational Exuberance, in 2000. And he talks about how there'll be about how these bubbles work, how initially there's a very positive narrative, there's some price increases, uh, and the price increases cause everyone to get even more excited. Oh, you see? It's true. The price goes up and more. You see? It's true. And it keeps going up and up, and everybody's saying, yeah, 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 it's true. So everybody's focusing on the input. Oh, we've got more. The share prices have gone up. The valuation of startups have gone up. The the everybody's talking about it. They're talking about inputs. They're not talking about outputs. And so my emphasis for my whole life has been on outputs. And actually, 20 years ago, most people were focused on or uh, were on focused on outputs. So what do I mean by outputs? Well, is there a market? You know, is there a market uh, in terms of dollars for this new technology? Are the startups making money? Are there some happy customers? So. Uh, Early on, I became an optimist because, for example, with uh, personal computers, people talked about how people were using Microsoft Word and uh, being able to uh, create documents faster than they did in the past with typewriters and secretaries. Uh, spreadsheets, so you're able to do spreadsheets on the computer much better than you could before. So it's very important to focus on outputs in a bubble. Don't focus on inputs. Don't focus on how much money, how the share prices are going up, how the valuations are going up, how there's more startup, how there's more pay, academic papers, how there's more patents. Mm -hmm. Focus on outputs. Focus on real economic output. Is there a happy customer who is paying for something? And they're paying for something because it gives them value. So you have to look for that. So I would say outputs versus valuations. So yeah, that's uh, that's quite a, an insightful uh, uh, perspective. And thank you for for demystifying a bit how bubbles work and and through these inflated uh, financials and so on and so forth. So it seems to me that in this case, pessimism, as you use it, is a good anti antidote for bubbles. Are there any other ways in which we can stay sane inside a bubble? And of course, we are now in the AI bubble, but in general. Well, the thing that, that's changed about bubbles since uh, Robert Schiller wrote his book is that there's so many of them. So some people call them micro bubbles. So, you know, in 2000, the dot-com bubble, 2008, the great big banking bubble. But now it's that there is so many, you know, that's the... Uh, for years, people have been talking about delivery drones, fintech, blockchain, self-driving vehicles, solid-state batteries, EVTOLs, on and on. You know, then there's crypto and uh, the metaverse and Web3 came and went very quickly last year. Uh, and, and AI, AI has been around for a long time. I mean, when I was uh, a, a PhD student back at uh, Carnegie Mellon in the early 80s, that was the second AI bubble. 
Uh, so yes. we were in expert systems. So I've looked a lot at expert systems because a lot of people said they were going to reduce the cost of writing software for robots. So that got me interested in them. Now, of course, none of that really expert systems never really took off just in, only in some specialized applications. But then since like 2012, so the last 10 years, ever since uh, some of these books by Eric Benjolson, Andrew McAfee, uh, we've been expecting all this stuff to happen. And initially I was optimistic. I looked at IBM Watson and I thought, well, it seems to be working. You know, everyone's, they're doing it. They're working with these hospitals. And then the uh, Wall Street Journal came out with this negative article about uh, IBM Watson that died. But then there was Jeffrey Hinton, Turing Award winner saying that uh, in 2016 and five years, there won't be any jobs for radiologists anymore. That never materialized. <laughs> there <didn't> was <laughs> AI for criminal justice. There was AI for policing. There was AI for uh you know finding uh, image recognition of uh criminals uh so there's been multiple even among this, this third wave of ai hype that people would call it uh compared to the first wave in the 1950s and the second wave in the 1980s there's all kinds of waves in this third wave yes. uh and so generative ai is just the latest one and so when i hear generative ai I mean, I'm suspicious because all these other bubbles that people have been talking about over the last five to 10 years haven't worked out. So then I'm thinking, well, people are going to be skeptical. People are going to ask more questions. But no, right? They jump on the bandwagon. Universities release these numbers saying that oh, all these jobs are going to be lost. All these consulting firms say this. Uh, yeah, they said the same thing 10 years ago. All these consulting firms said that we'd have <laughs> 16 trillion in AI, uh, for an AI market by 2030. These academics are saying we're all going to lose our jobs from robots. And now they're doing the same thing. And everybody is jumping on the bandwagon. This one's saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. We've heard this before. Let's be a little more careful. Uh, yes. And there are a lot of myths running around with like, it's chat GPT is sentient and, the, and so on and so forth. And uh, of course, uh, people are excited and therefore they feed the bubble, let's put it this way. And of course, if they invest, then the bubble grows. So are there any ways to help us evaluate things? Uh, you know, like not to get fooled by this. I mean, I'm telling you, I did my PhD in artificial intelligence. I was... Uh, uh, creating expert systems for diagnosis. That's a good application for expert systems. But of course, uh, uh, now we have much more computational capacity and uh, therefore the mirage is bigger. Of course, we know the technologies, they existed before and it's not sentience yet. And we need much more uh, theoretical advances in order to achieve sentience. And that's what we are working on also. Well, Dr. Ben Gertzel is leading uh, such work and he is the founder of SingularityNet, uh, which is hosting our podcast. So actually, how can we stay truthful and not get fooled right now in the middle of this AI? <laughs> well, again, you go back to uh, the, the, the market. Uh, and if you look at the, the market size for AI software, it's still like 60 billion. Some people will say, oh, no, no, it's much bigger because they'll throw in all the hardware. And they'll say, oh, well, but if you look at all the NVIDIA hardware, there's a huge market. Well, that's like saying that the market for mobile phones 
is huge because a lot of people are buying base stations from Ericsson and uh, Nokia and Motorola. Well, Dang. wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Look at the final market. Is there some value being created? And what we see here is that it's not clear. I mean, there's a lot of people using uh, chat GPT and other generative AI to do things, to do like send email, to write articles. But I, I say, well, does it have an impact on productivity? So when I talk about a happy customer, I'm talking about a customer that becomes more productive. And almost all of this discussion is about an individual and how they can write more articles, do more emails, uh, and, and therefore they, they say, well, look how productive I've become. Now we'll come, but you wanna focus on system productivity. You wanna focus on where the system is. So what, you can write a lot of emails. Somebody has to read them then. We have too many email messages. We have too many articles. We have too many patents. We have too much written things. Uh, yes. We need higher quality written stuff. And so it doesn't really help. So you have to look at the system, whatever the system is. So think about coding. So, okay, uh, coders will say it helps me code faster. But the, the problem is, is that coding is not just about writing code and then it works. It's about writing code, debugging code, and there's very complex systems. It's not just one person doing this, it's, it's individuals doing one part of it, but then those different parts have to interact. So we need to see applications where it helps a system work. Uh, yes. And so that's where I, I really find a lot of uh, really excessive hype about generative AI is that people don't look at the system. And there are some examples of good things, I'll come back in a minute. Of where I'm optimistic, but a lot of it is not. A lot of it, people don't want to look at these things. They 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 just want to say, oh, people can write better. And so some academics did this study. Oh, you can you can write a, a decent article with Chat GPT, and therefore it's going to improve the productivity years. But writing is not <clears throat> a significant output in our economy. I mean, yeah, there are people who write books and things like that, but no way chat GPT, that's the high end, that's the ultra high end, right? That's the top 0.001% of people who really write books that people wanna read. Those are very hard for chat GPT to do. Uh, so, you know, you have to step back and think, okay, what could it do? Can it help us make cars better or make appliances better? Can it help us uh, construct buildings? Can it help us grow crops? Can it help us mine uh, iron ore or something? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and the answer a lot is is no. I mean, maybe it can help us develop things. Okay, it can help us develop software products. Okay, okay, I'm getting you there. Now I wanna see the evidence that it's improving <laughs> the productivity of some companies. I suspect that, that that will emerge later. It's just gonna take a long time because companies have to think through this. And that's why a lot of them have uh, said to employees that you can't use this. They wanna work it out, they wanna fix it. That's gonna take time. Uh, and uh, you know, when I see some examples of that, I'll be very optimistic, but until I do, then I'll continue to be pessimistic. So yes, so I understand that I have many things to, to just uh, briefly comment on, on your take here. So of course, I understand and I agree that we did applications grounded in reality and to see the results and how actually AI is uh, changing lives in the world. Uh, those ground, that grounding, yes, it's very important. I also have to remark that actually, you know, the concept of intelligence is very uh, ethereal. 
uh, esoteric, if I may, there's not a clear definition. The scientists don't agree. And having been in the field of artificial intelligence throughout my career from my PhD and also as an academic, uh, we did not elucidate it yet, you know, in all these decade, decades. And now we're getting into awareness and consciousness, other even more ethereal terms. And as such, it's kind of not such uh, in the grounding is not in the immediate thing which comes to mind <laughs> when you talk about artificial intelligence that's why we need people like you even more for this kind of grounding so your perspective which is i do not want to call it pessimistic it's realistic and but i wanted to make another remark that to what you mentioned about uh, proof uh, coding and proofing proving that the code runs well i think here i do not want to call it necessarily artificial intelligence. Uh, it's simply coding, right? Because well, you can write routines, and this is what I wrote already from my master's thesis that was long ago, to verify code. And there is a company which I like a lot. It's called Runtime Verification. And actually, uh, we are working with them and with Cardano uh, to prove that the code is actually running and it is uh, running well. So I think that is... Um, uh, an application where we can use uh, 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 coding, I mean, actually automation, let's call it like that, to to prove coding. But otherwise, I completely agree. And I would like to ask you, because you mentioned this uh, inflated valuations and so on and so forth. So what would be, uh, what is the status of VC funding in today's uh, AI bubble and in general in, in bubbles? Well, I think it's very hard not to be swept along because all these valuations go up and people are uh, asking how, you know, what do you think? And if you, if you say pessimistic things like I say, then people are going to dismiss you as an old crank. Uh, and so it's hard not to be swept along, but you just have to realize that uh, it's probably going to come down because that's what we've had happen over the last five, 10 years is that all these bubbles have popped. Uh, this bubble, you know, you, you, you can say, oh, eventually it'll all work out. Yeah, but it's not probably not going to work out for those companies uh, just because AI works out, you know. And uh, I always my, my favorite example of this uh, Amara's law that supposedly uh, we always underestimate, overestimate in the short term, underestimate long term. I say, well, what about Charles Babbage? We needed all this great work on mechanical computers in 1870, 1880, or 1860, and his uh, yes. assistant, Ada Lovelace, very smart people. But, you know, there was no market for another 80 years. Uh, so, you know, uh, I, I don't like it when people talk about the potential. Oh, it has such great potential. Yeah, quantum entanglement and the Einstein-Rosenberg bridge, they all have great, great uh, potential. But that doesn't mean they're going to happen <laughs> soon. You have to understand if things are going to happen soon. So I talked a lot about, you know, is there a market and is there happy, uh, happy customers? Is there improvements in productivity? But it's also, is there an improvement somehow in the technology? You know, is there an improvement? So you look back at the early days of the, of the personal computers, and, of course, people were talking about Moore's Law. They're going to get better. So that was very obvious. Even in the early days of e-commerce, when uh, uh, we first started using uh, Amazon to buy books, we could see that there's rapid improvements in bandwidth. So we saw that uh, websites were going to evolve from just text to pictures and video and other things. And that would enable all these other forms of uh, e-commerce to emerge. 
So it does that exist? So a lot of people say, oh, we're in the early days of of AI. No, I mean AI has been around for a long time. People talked about it for a long time, right? This is the third wave. Yes. And then you, exactly. and even if it's in the third wave, it's not new. Neural networks have been around for a long time. And the CEO of OpenAI said, well, we're not going to build any more big models. So there goes one of the big ways that improvements are going to occur. So I, I don't see uh, big improvements happening. There'll be some, you know, although uh, maybe not a lot. It's hard to say. Uh, recently, OpenAI announced that they will no longer offer their software for detecting whether uh or something has been written in AI because they say it doesn't work well enough. Well, wait a minute. Isn't it supposed to get better? Right. And they, they said something about it was uh, work 75% of the time and they put produce some numbers. Um, uh, and there's other companies that offer this type of software, but all of this makes me suspicious because it, they're kind of saying, well, this is a lot harder than we thought. I'm saying, well, yeah, I'm certain the sir there is. So, uh, we we keep finding out that things are harder to do. And so I keep looking for, you know, what's the facts in the situation and how hard is it to do? Because that's what I want to know. How hard is it to do? Uh, you know, what kind of performance do we have now? What are we going to have in the future? What do customers want? These are the kinds of questions I think you need to be asking. People need to be asking. Yes, of course. And, you know, OpenAI is not the only uh, kid in town. Just wanted to say we are here as well. And it's not about bigger models necessarily, but it's about better models as well. And we have our own approach. Uh, and I would like to invite you. Of course, we did not release it yet. We are about to release it. Uh, I think it will be next year. <laughs> Hopefully it will surprise the world and take it by a by the storm and I would like to invite you then also for a uh, you know uh, like a, a clear appraisal of uh, of the future <laughs> once uh, we release the, the past to singularity uh, we are much well, I agree more 100% with your 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 comments there these small models are really important and I've been a, a follower a believer in what Andrew Nig has been saying for years he has been talking about these small models and he talked about the problems of people train it in there on some data and then they go out to the hospital and it doesn't work right. And you really have to train it in the hospital. And and so I think that you're going to see companies and I think they're doing it right now. They're training. They're trying to improve processes and they have data, internal data that they're going to use to uh, improve, uh, to train an AI model to help improve the, so their internal processes. And I think that's exactly where the emphasis should be. And uh, you know, less emphasis on all these, this big kind of hype conversation of, oh, AI is going to uh, improve productivity dramatically and put it everywhere. No, it's an existential threat. It's going to take over, right? <laughs> we, we've allowed this conversation to become so broad and so big that it's, it's meaningless. Get back to the small of just a company training AI on its internal data and improving its productivity. That's, that's right. really where the future is. Correct. And I see that uh, you are moving towards the optimistic. You said you're going to mention the optimistic side and the more bright side of, uh, let's call it still the bubble. Uh, okay. So, there's another example that I'm very yes. optimistic about, and that is Hollywood. Because Hollywood for years has just redone things. I mean, you see, see a television series and each each episode is really not a big change from a previous episode. 
and they they you know they reused all reuse a lot of uh, a, a lot of their recordings. Yes. And on LinkedIn, you can see these people will post things about cartoons where they show that a cartoon from now, a recent cartoon, is almost almost the same as the one in the past, right? There's some underlying movements that are the same, and they've just changed some uh, clothing and other things on the cartoon character. And it's the same thing with these episodes. And then, the, then, then even in movies, the popularity of these uh, these sequels and prequels, and there's a lot of books on how it's cheaper to make a sequel or prequel than it is mm-hmm. to make a brand new movie. Well, it's because they're using old old stuff, old recordings, and now AI allows them to do it a little more efficiently. I don't think it it's something that's really that dramatically new, but that's why I'm optimistic about it because they're able to just make it a little more efficient than they did before. Uh, Indeed. Indeed. And so I, I see that, that that happening. Yes, and Stability AI, of course, yes, is working with Hollywood and they showed uh, a lot of, uh, I mean, <laughs> they, they increase the efficiency of uh, movies because uh, of their, you know, like uh, uh, the stunts were not done by real people. They were done by avatars and so on and so forth. So indeed, it can, it can uh, have applications for Hollywood. But I only just you know just one thing to 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 come back to to one uh, remark which you made uh, when you mentioned Babbage and because of uh, Ada Lovelace uh, because um, yeah we are here at the Mindplex podcast Mindplex community podcast and we have several Cardano listeners as well and our token is called Ada. Uh, in honor of Ada Lovelace, so so you know, I just wanted to 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 um, salute the fact that you went back to to their work um, in uh, in what you in in your remarks. If you wanted to add something more uh, in that regard, uh, please go on. Otherwise, I'm ready with my next well, question. Well, these, the, the work it was marvelous, and you know, there was other people who followed up on them. On, um... Shannon, Claude Shannon, and uh, Boolean logic and information theory. And so these things are important developments in the whole evolution of the market. But remember that a lot of these things came long ago, right? So just because there's some breakthrough, scientific breakthrough or something, doesn't mean that the market is going to take off. Generally Mm -hmm. speaking, no. Generally speaking, it takes a long time for these things to happen. So you, you, you have to kind of understand the details of, the market and what customers are willing to pay for, and then how expensive the technology is, how good it is. Those things are hard to do, but that's essential. You have to understand those things. And it's unfortunate that they get very little emphasis. I mean, my I've, I had my whole academic career was one big argument with the business school professors who said, no, it's not the technology, it's the business model. They don't care about this evolution. To them, it's like this technology, you know, somebody reads a paper and then suddenly everybody develops yeah. something, right? Well, no, it's a whole string of papers that help improve the performance and cost over time. It's a very lengthy process. And if you really want to be somebody like John Doerr, who was a very good investor uh, years ago, decades ago, then you have to understand these things. So I do not know if we can get this answer to your question, because uh, (laughs) I don't know if you give this advice for free, but... Uh, not as advice, but as a perspective. So from an investor perspective, what should we do about this bubble? Should we go all in? Should we watch? <laughs> should we 
uh, invest cautiously and in what, or this maybe can be another conversation. Well, yeah, I, I, I don't, you know, the, the problem with investing is that it doesn't just depend upon how good the application is, whether it's going to be economical or all those things. It depends on what other investors are doing, right? It's very easy to make money by by just uh, investing and then you sell out to the other fool, right? The greater fool theory. There's always going to be a greater fool than me <laughs> who's willing to buy it for an inflated price. And I don't understand those things. You know, those uh, some game. people are. Some yeah. people really know how much other people are willing to pay. Uh, and right now they're trying to figure out if the uh, IPO market is going to open up again. And then, and if it does, then people are going to be investing like crazy to then have those firms do an IPO. And so it's not just the the common sense, the economics that I'm talking about uh, in investing. Investing is about understanding what other people are going to do. Totally, totally. Uh, and before you move on and sorry to bring you back to kind of a with a pessimistic question, or maybe not necessarily, but uh, I wanted to ask, what is your take about the talking town, which you mentioned, on the existential threat that uh, artificial general intelligence poses? Do you think it's uh, nonsense or it makes sense? Because everybody, everybody, big organizations, European Union, I was now at the United Nations uh, Artificial Intelligence for Good conference in which they were talking, oh, we need ethics in AI and to avoid this ex existential threat and so on and so forth. So I'd like to know what is your take on the existential threat, the potential for that? Well, the problem is that somebody, you know, all it takes is one person to hook up AI to do something when they shouldn't have done that. You know, they, they somebody in the military does this. Uh, now, I, I think it's a low chance because the military has a lot of safeguards and companies have a lot of safeguards. But still, it's possible. It's possible to do these things. And it's possible to to ruin your company's reputation by putting out something that doesn't work. Um, but in general, I'd say that it's it's very uh, overblown. And I find the whole discussion about are is AI going to be more intelligent than us? And I keep, and that's not the issue. The issue is whether it works for us, whether it proves productivity. Yes. It's not whether it's smarter than us. I mean, think about you know, you know, and but the society has become this way where we're all trying to find the smartest person, and we give them all these tests, and then who's ever smartest gets into the next level of school and gets into Stanford and then gets into uh, the top consulting firm uh, when. It's 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 there isn't just one way to measure intelligence. There's lots of ways to measure intelligence, and we need lots of different people. And for AI, it's about whether it works for us, whether it improves productivity. That's what the conversation should be about. Where can it? How can it help us improve productivity, make people's lives better? Not about whether or not it's so smart or not, and whether it's smarter than humans and people trying to come up with a new Turing test. And uh, it's kind of uh, it's kind of foolish, really. But, but there is, you know, now uh, yeah, you brought me to think about how actually I lost my orientation faculty. I mean, I remember driving before uh, Google Maps, driving with a map on my knee and uh, <laughs> looking at it while I was driving and actually finding my way. Now, I cannot, and in any, in any other new place where I was going, and now I cannot do that anymore. It's really, so the question is, uh, yes, 
uh, is becoming better than us at certain things and it's wonderful. But will that also lead uh, us to become dumber? What do you think there? Lead us to what? <laughs> to become more dumber, you know, like stu more or, stupid <laughs> or, or less well, uh, intelligent or whatever you It depends you on how you it. use this. It depends on how you use Google search. Um, you know, if you just put things into Google search and you just accept the answer, any answer, then then you are getting dumber. Um, but if you think about things, you know, there are things that I've always relied on in Google search. I look in and I say, uh, what's the population of Australia? Number comes out. Okay, I believe that. Um, will AI take, but if I type in, will, will AI take off, uh, take off, I'm not going to look at the top response. Um, and I think there's a lot of young people who are going to use AI to do their homework because their objective is only to finish the homework, only to do write this paper. Uh, and that's not the objective from a societal standpoint. We, we're, we're, there is no value to this paper except the process of creating it and the process of the student thinking about the issue, trying to organize their thoughts, trying to understand the issue and trying to put it down in a manner that adds value. And and so it can make us dumber. I think that it's going to cause some kids to become smarter and some kids to become dumber. Some kids are going to realize, well, wow, I can rely on Google and ChatGPT for some answers, but I can't rely on for other answers. And mm -hmm. a lot of answers I have to think about uh, a lot more carefully. And I want to add something else there is that schools have done this because they offer courses on all kinds of things. And some things, though, it's it's not it's not so easy, right? You can you can give the laws of physics, you can give the laws of chemistry, but you're going to take an innovation class, and they're going to tell you about a lot of simple things that don't mean anything, and the person is think, oh, I know innovation. No, no, no <laughs> yes. innovation. They don't. I mean, I get people all the time doing this to me. You know, they they learned about s curves and a bunch of other very simple stuff, and and they think they understand innovation, and they don't. And so our school system has done this. We've, we've, we've said that, well, you can learn anything, you know, real quickly. You take a course on it and you learn it. And, well, you can only learn things if they're actually known, right? So you can learn the laws of physics because we know them. We can learn laws of chemistry. But there's a lot of things that are a lot harder that, that I don't care how many courses, you know, you offer courses and you may actually – make things worse unless you tell people that, well, we don't really know. Because if you tell, if you offer a course and people take the course and say, oh, I'm an expert. <laughs> yes, I agree. And with the innovation, definitely I have experience uh, and I cannot agree more with you. I mean, I've been on so many science, technology and innovation councils around the world as very high levels. And I can tell you that we have... Um, architectures uh, for like roadmaps for innovation that are, you know, like uh, hundreds of pages. And I do not know if anyone can make any sense of it. And, yeah. and can't, yeah, so, so, so I could not agree more uh, with what you said. Well, that brings me another thing. There's a lot of people who think that all you need is a plan and then you develop the technology, right? President Kennedy said, we're going to go to the moon in 10 years. And we went to the moon. Everybody says, see, all we have to do is have a plan. Well, he got lucky. We had all those rockets from Bernard von Braun and other people. We had the start of the, the information technology re revolution. He got lucky. 
Most of the time, you can't do that. You have to look at what the technology is capable and whether it's going to be improved. And don't think for a second, well, but we're going to put in some money. Money, people have tried to do every, almost everything. Right? There's all these professors out there. They're trying all kinds of things. They've tried almost everything. Now, they haven't tried everything. If you can find something new, then yes. You're, but for the most part, they have tried most things. So I don't care if you put more money into something. If it hasn't been improved over the last 10 years, the money probably isn't going to help. Now, if it's been improved, well, yeah, you put in money and maybe and you can probably get some continued improvements. But it isn't as simple as just saying, oh, we just got to put some money in this. And there's too many people that think yes. the whole solution is money. All we got to do is put some money in it. And Everybody we're thinks that. Yes, at yeah. least in, in my world, I agree. You know, and if we want more science and technology work better, we're going to have to do it differently. We're going to have to do it very differently. We're going to have to, we can't just give more money to universities because all they're going to do is give us more academic papers. And we don't need more academic papers. We've got two million <laughs> a year. And I'll tell you, they're really hyper-specialized. Most of them are really bad. A lot of them are written by paper mills in China or some other country. We don't need more of that. Right. Even the ones written by the president of Stanford weren't that good. Exactly. I could not agree more. more papers. <laughs> so that, that was definitely because we are both academic researchers. Yes. And, and uh, we witnessed the decay of the peer reviewed games, which yeah. led to this abundance of easy marketable jargon and, and bubbles in the academic uh, world, which is yeah. unbelievable and very disappointing. Yeah. So um, I know you wrote several articles in this regard. I don't know if you wanted to detail a bit more about that or I can move on. Uh, yeah, I wrote that. an article for American <laughs> Affairs with Lee Vinsel and uh, another fellow yeah. whose name escapes me uh, in last last November that that that's that's about how we're not getting the innovation we want. And how we need to do ac academic research differently, basic and applied research differently. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I've written a lot on that. Um, we will post the link to that. And also, yeah, because that is also when is the lie that rules applies also to academia and to a journal yeah. like Nature. I mean, I really lost my faith in everything. I mean, yeah. really. Yeah. So. It is amazing that that they don't do a better job. The reviewers don't do a better job. We need fewer papers and better papers. We need probably one-tenth the number of papers and just yes. better ones. So Stanford and Journal Nature. I mean, what more can I? I mean, <laughs> <Yeah>. Yes, <laughs> really, really disappointing. So, and you know, I think we, um, I, I, I got kind of to to towards the end of our conversation, but I wanted, you know, um, as the last question, which I still have, and I'm not sure if I really understood exactly the punchline on this. So competing in the age of bubbles. We spoke about bubbles, but we did not talk a lot about competing. And so what is the competing aspect uh, in the age of yeah, bubbles? That's a good question. Well, basically, I've been looking at the economics of technologies for years, and I say we need to pay attention to those economics. So, um, you know, I look at those economics and I'm pessimistic, uh, but publishers don't like that kind of stuff. They don't want you to, have, they want a how-to book. So I got to have a how-to, right? So I got to tell them how, where, where, when to look at these economics and how to look at them. And so it's all about assessment. I mean, a lot of this competing is about positioning and partnerships. That's what these business schools have done and uh, platforms and all these companies are doing this stuff and they're not succeeding. 
So there's something else. There's something else is that the economics of thinking about uh, what the economics of a business is. And starting from an industry and thinking about what drives the cost, what do people want, uh, what can change things. And let me give you an example. Please. Because I come across this all the time in AI. Uh, think about insurance. And people are talking about how all these insurance businesses and they're going to help us find uh, uh, lower risk clients. I say, well, how much is that going to affect the cost of insurance? You have to come up with a method that reduces like the number of fires or the number of car accidents, something like that. That's the only way because that's what most of the cost of insurance is. Yes. It's not the cost of signing up people. It's the cost of paying out. Right. So if you're going to reduce the cost of insurance, because this is what productivity is about, it's about reducing the cost. You're going to have to find a way to reduce the incidence of something. And and this has happened in the past. People came with smoke detectors and they charged people, uh, charged homes who had smoke detectors less money because they actually reduce the number of fires. Right. So when I talk about economics, of industry, I'm talking about what drives the cost in the industry. Figure that out. Try to try to target that. Try to make that better. You know, in ride sharing, it's not about the cost of the driver. It's about congestion. Figure out how to reduce congestion. So you find what the pain point is. And by the way, everybody knows that about congestion. Man, I took a transportation policy class 40 years ago. The professor talked about it. I mean, a lot of these things people have known about for decades, but they get ignored by all these 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 new people who've gone into entrepreneurship. Uh, because, oh, they want to get rich and they think it's really cool and on and on and on. And they don't really, and they're, what they're good at is raising money because they're good at telling the story and being an evangelizer. But they're not good at thinking about the economics of industries, thinking about what really needs improvement, what technology could do that. That's the hard part. And we need more people uh like that. Yes, and that's absolutely. what I that's what I'm trying to tell. That's that's really the message of the book is that we have to think about those things a lot better. You know, so just saying oh, all these startups now realize they're losing money. They're going to all make money now because they pivoted. They're going to no because they they chose a bad business. Almost everything is decided when you choose your business. And then when you choose what you're going to focus on in the business, whether you're going to focus on, you know, who the customers are and things like that. After that, after you made those decisions, you can't really make a big change. True. You can't really improve it. You can't really How become to choose possible. the right business. This is, uh, yes, uh, the subtitle of your book. So I, I really look forward. Uh, well, maybe that is. Maybe, <laughs> maybe that's what the title should be, choosing the right business. Yes. No, that is yeah. because, I mean, it's, this is a critical thing in the end. And I just wanted to thank you for this example with the insurance yeah. industry. Because it shows all that. Yes, we need evidence-based. We need to look at the realistic parameters and also another thing uh, so your example brought me to this uh, quote uh, in the age of the intelligence machine the only critical skill for success is the ability to ask the right question and that is was your example with the insurance industry as well what, yeah what yeah well, i agree with it. it's, it's asking the right question yeah Yes, and that is not an easy fit in the the age of uh, <laughs> lies, <laughs> when the lies rule, in which the lie is uh, ruling, and also yes, when you have all this fakeness and fake news and bubbles. So I really appreciate your uh, honesty, frankness, 
a blunt truth. So you need more people like you who are uh, looking at the evidence and are demystifying uh, things, uh, embellished things and uh, cutting the <laughs> Gordian knots uh, in order to clarify matters. We really need uh, more people like you. And I really look forward to read your book, uh, Jeff. Thank you so much for your time today and for your uh, unique perspective on the AI bubble and on bubbles in general. Thank you. Thank you.